You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome back to the Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your co-host, Joshua Whiteside, senior counsel from the firm San Luis Obispo office and co-practice group leader for the student practice group. With me today are two fabulous attorneys, and I'll let them introduce themselves. We have James. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, James McCann. I'm a senior counsel uh, with our Fresno office, and um, I assist cities and counties with uh, all kinds of uh, issues that come up as a deputy county counsel for um, one county and city attorney for another. So I'm happy to be here and uh, talk about the, uh, the topic of bidding and uh, procurement. Thank you, James. And Amanda? Hello, I'm Amanda Savage. I am an associate also in our Fresno office. I belong to the facilities and business practice group, as well as the municipal practice group. I tend to specialize on the municipal side in contracts. And then on the fab side, I do a lot of what we're talking about today, which is bidding and procurement. Well, with that, you know, facilities and business, sometimes in our in our world, we, we use acronyms. So you may hear me refer to FAB, or you may hear other Lozano Smith attorneys refer to FAB. That start, stands for facilities and business. Like I said, we've got fabulous attorneys with a fabulous topic. Hopefully the uh, pun is not too thick there for you all. But um, we're going to talk about bidding and procurement, something that I know a bit about, but not. I think I'm probably more on the... Uh, I would defer and say I don't know the answer to questions more than I know the answer to questions. Um, So why don't we go ahead and get started with sort of just a basic understanding of what bidding and procurement is, just an overall sort of summary statement. Okay, well, that's a great place to start because I think, um, you know, when you talk about the terminology, we assume that people know what it means, but, you know, a lot of these areas of legal practice, they kind of have their own languages. And so when we're talking about bidding and procurement, we're really talking about purchasing things and the way we go about purchasing those things. So um, I'm sure we're going to get into it in a lot more detail later, but are we buying goods? Are we buying services? Or are we possibly doing some sort of um, construction type project? And depending on what that item is, it's really going to um, change the way we look at the process and how we go about getting that item. Yeah. And just to kind of add to that, you know, one of the the primary purposes of bidding and procurement is to make sure that the public funds that a public agency is expending are being uh, spent reasonably and properly and, and the services or the the goods that they're receiving are fair um, and 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 for a good price. So it's really about um, public transparency and and protection of public funds as well. That's such a good point. And you know, anytime we start talking about money, uh, you know, my the sweat starts to develop on my brow here. Uh, so this can be pretty serious. I'm assuming there's a lot of litigation that can develop on both sides, whether the agency spent the funds correctly or. Um, for the contractor side or whoever's, you know, the seller, uh, whether or not they, they did so uh, with uh, full transparency about their, their uh, services or their goods or their construction that they're providing and uh, with fairness. Um, is it, with, with regards to like bidding 
um, and procurement and, and then that sort of conversation, we're really, we should be thinking about those issues from the get-go, right? We shouldn't be waiting until after we've made the purchase or later down the line and look back and, and figure out, oh, you know, what were the rules, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, regarding your comment about, you know, litigation and, and legal challenges, that that's uh, a huge risk and it, it can happen from, uh, you know, parties who are not selected uh, to provide the, the, whose contracts were not chosen. And, and so they're not um, able to provide the, the services or goods and they believe that that's unfair for some reason. They were, they were excluded improperly for some reason. You could even potentially have a, a taxpayer who alleges waste of taxpayer funds if, you know, there is extravagance involved, something like that. And so, yeah, absolutely looking ahead, planning ahead and knowing kind of the rules of the road before you start along that drive is the best way to, to do that. It seems like it's not as simple as walking into a supermarket, right, and putting things into your basket. Uh, there's a, whenever a superintendent or board says, you know, let, let, let's buy something, or a city council says, let's buy something, it's not quite so simple. Is that right? That's very true. Um, unfortunately, it is not that easy. There's a lot of rules and regulations that our, our clients have to be careful of, and the other day, James and I were generally talking about this subject, and he really kind of hit the nail on the head with the main things you have to think about when you're starting a procurement or bidding process. First, we have to look at who the client is, because the rules differ. Um, if you're a K-12 school district, if you're a community college district, if you're a city, if you're a county, the rules you have to play by, they might be the same, but oftentimes they differ. Um, and so it's important right off the bat to even know who we're talking to in order to give proper advice. Well, I, I primarily work with uh, school districts and county offices of education. So I will express some courtesy here and let our municipal uh, brethren um, get their guidance uh, first. So uh, James, why don't we start with the municipal side of things? What, what do folks need to be thinking about when looking at a, say like a contract uh, for uh, for a public work? Sure. I mean, while the rules are different in the nuances, the big picture is really the same. So, you know, what, what you're looking at is, you know, what are, what are you contracting for? Are you contracting for goods? Are you contracting for services? If it's services, what kinds of services? Um, and really what we're mostly concerned about there is whether it's public works. So is it construction or, improvement or rehabilitation or painting of, of a public building or um, some type of, of public facility, because if that's the case, then, then um, you know, bidding is, is likely required. So kind of finding what type of contract or, or what's being contracted for would be one of the first considerations. And I mean, within kind of that, the world of public works, then it really depends on how much the contract is for, whether or not bidding is required. If it's a very small project, it may or may not require bidding. Um, if it's a larger project, it almost certainly will require uh, bidding of some type. So to give you an example, for cities, 
if they're a city that hasn't adopted what's called the um, Uniform Construction Cost Accounting Act, which is a very long uh, name for uh, CUPCA is what a lot of our clients know it as, um, which is kind of a short, uh, it's it's an easier process for bidding. But and, and so cities, counties, educational agencies can uh, can adopt that and simplify the process. But for cities that haven't, they have to bid public works projects that are $5,000 or more. And so that's a very low threshold that virtually any project uh, pouring cement is going, to, is going to be over that. And so um, those are the types of considerations. If it's a county, it's going to depend on the, the population size. Um, if, if, again, they're non-CUPCA, then um, it, it's going to range depending on the population size, whether it's $4,000 threshold, $10,000 threshold, uh, $6,500, $50,000, whatever it is. Um, and then even special districts, uh, it gets into the nuances there. Some of them are $25,000 threshold. Others, any project whatsoever has to be bid because it's mostly based on assessments. So it's it's more directly taxpayer funds, if you will. But obviously, um, you know, it, it's it's about knowing that ahead of time and, and considering that ahead of time so that it's not, as you said, it's not after the fact saying, oh, we should have bid that. And now we have to kind of try to unwind this. So just to recap, so there's essentially bidding thresholds that if the amount estimated for the cost of that work um, is going to be above that amount, then you have to bid. If it's below that, you you don't have to bid. But how do we get to that estimate? How, who makes that determination? Is that the CBO or is that the agency or is there some independent resource we have to utilize? Um, well, for cities and counties, it's generally, uh, it can be done in-house. It can be done by, you know, kind of the city engineer. Um, it, depending on the type of project, it might be done by the architect that's hired for the project. Um, so it, it really varies depending on the type of project, the complexity of the project. Sometimes, again, it's done in-house. Sometimes it's, it's done by a contracted party. And then you mentioned special districts. What are what are some examples of special districts for those who are not familiar with that term? Yeah, absolutely. I apologize. I probably threw around a lot of terms in that explanation. Um, so a, a, a fire protection district would be one. A water district would be another. A utility district. Um, even a mosquito abatement district. Uh, there's a lot of different types of these uh, special public entities that have a very specific purpose. I think we had a coworker who worked in a cemetery district before or, <laughs> or was on the board of one. I had never heard of that before. Uh, it's really fascinating to think about just how many different public servants there are out there all serving on these various different boards and um, employees trying to manage and, and make these things happen, make this, this construction happen. Seems like there's a lot into it. Okay, well, we talked about bidding for, for public works. What about for non-public works, like for goods and services? Um, well, on, on the city-county side, it's uh, this is where there's a pretty big difference between um, cities and counties and um, educational agencies because what cities and counties are required to do by state law is adopt a procurement system and when they do that, they kind of get to set their own rules 
for when they're going to require um, bidding or informal bidding or uh, direct contracting. So just go out and negotiate a contract for goods or um, at what level um, somebody who maybe is a designated purchasing agent for the city or county has to then go to city council or a board of supervisors for approval. So there's a lot of there's a lot of play there that they get. Um, and, and in that sense, they're very unique from edu- educational entities, which I'll allow Amanda to kind of go over. So when we're talking about um, municipalities, and then we'll get to we'll get to educational agencies here in a bit. Um, if there's a new sort of if you're if you're new to the world of bidding and procurement, um, it seems like you could just look up ordinances, right, to figure out where these uh, certain bidding thresholds would be for public works. Maybe if you're a, a county with less than five hundred thousand, um, and then for entering into these non-public works contracts, those have to be adopted by ordinance as well. Is that correct? Yes. So for um, cities and counties, they have to be adopted by ordinance. And then a lot of times that's accompanied by a separate procurement manual or handbook, which can be fairly extensive. And that's where much of the detail is. So kind of the the skeleton of the um, procurement process is usually included in the ordinance, but then that will authorize a purchasing agent for cities. A lot of times it's, you know, city manager, um, that, that type of thing. Um, and, and so those individuals are then authorized to adopt policies and procedures kind of consistent with what's in the ordinance itself. And that, that ends up being this larger, more detailed handbook or manual, if you will. Got it. Okay. So there's, there's a manual, there's a, there, there's these ordinances. So there are places where I could go to get answers. Even if I'm a member of the public, right? If I, or if I'm one of these companies that is looking to, to make a bid, um, I could look through the public agency's uh, handbook and their ordinances to kind of get a sense for like where we should be estimating the, you know, whatever product we're, we're selling, so to speak. Um, is there any danger with just that amount of transparency? Like what are the, what, what do you commonly see the concerns or the issues develop over this process that develop? Cause it seems like everything's kind of streamlined and very out in the open. Um, what, what ultimately ends up happening that causes the conflict? James? Well, um, it, everything is very much out in the open, but that's kind of the way that the system is designed. It's all about public transparency because these are public funds, whether they are local funds, state funds, or potentially even federal funds uh, that are being used to to make the purchase. The issue usually comes up in the process and in the public agency not following their own process. Um, Generally, it's inadvertent. It's not something that's intentional. There's no uh, you know, scheming that's going on. It's really just about, we thought it went, was supposed to go this way, but it actually was supposed to follow this process or we weren't aware of this, uh, nuance or, you know, idiosyncrasy related to this type of product or service. Um, and so that's usually where there can be concerns. And then if it, if there are multiple bids or proposals that are submitted, the fairness in considering those, following the process in considering those, all of that, it's 
it's just the the issues come up when there's some deviation and there's not a good explanation for that deviation. Got it. So it's, it's the detail-oriented person. This is, they must apply <laughs> for yes. to work in this field. Well, let's talk about educational agencies. Um, Amanda, why don't you uh, kind of address the same sort of subjects that we just talked about with James? Sure. I'll start with uh, a little bit on public works projects and then kind of speak more broadly um, and then feel free to redirect me as needed. So for public works projects specifically, and you know, when we talk public works, as James noted, we're really talking about construction type projects. Um, for school districts who have not adopted CUPCA, as James mentioned earlier, that set bidding threshold is $15,000. So as soon as your project goes above $15,000, you have to bid that project. Um, on the other hand, if you're a school district that's adopted the California Uniform Public Construction Cost Accounting Act, then your threshold goes up pretty significantly. So as opposed to $15,000, your limit then becomes $60,000. And then even then you have uh, up to $200,000 that you can utilize a more informal bid process. School districts that are CUPCA districts really have a lot more flexibility in um, terms of the amount that they can play with before bidding is required. But similar to what James was saying for a lot of cities and counties, if you're not a Cupka school district, then $15,000 is your limit, right? Yeah, let me, let me step in there. So let's talk about Cupka a little bit more. So why wouldn't you become a Cupka district? That's a great question. We, it's interesting because we see clients where we really feel like they could benefit from adopting it, but there's a little bit of front end work that you have to do. Generally, you have to adopt a resolution. You have to get the necessary approval by whatever your governing board is. Um, and then additionally, you have to abide by certain requirements and restrictions in accordance with the relevant act. So I think a lot of the times our clients look at it and they feel like it's a lot of steps to put it in place. But in reality, it's really not. And we can do a lot to help guide clients with that process and even preparing the necessary resolution to get that set and in place. So um, I think a lot of people just are worried that it's going to be a lot of work, but the reality is it's actually not. And is there a lot of back-end work on, in terms of maintaining that status? My understanding is there is no maintenance. Um, the only maintenance would potentially be that the thresholds for informal bidding and uh, formal bidding are adjusted. I think it's every five years. Um, and so if you didn't have kind of an automatic escalator that was included in your process of adopting that, then you might have to go back and change that every five years. But otherwise, once you have adopted the CUPCA procedures, you're, you're in and, and you don't have to update that um, again, other than those potentially those bidding thresholds. Got it. Thank you. Um, and Amanda, going back to the bidding requirements for our public works projects for school districts. So how do we how do we define what construction is? Okay, so that's a great question. So a public project or you know colloquially construction is essentially demolition, new construction, 
or renovation of public property. And there are set definitions in California codes that you can look to. But at the end of the day, it's it's really, like I said, demo, new construction or renovation of public property or public facilities. I think where we have to be a little bit careful, though, is there's kind of a gray area when maintenance is different than construction. Um, and it's not very clearly defined. Uh, so it can get tricky. We can do a full analysis and breakdown depending on kind of how the client describes the project and what they're looking at. But when we're talking about maintenance, we're generally talking about routine, recurring, and like standard or usual work to preserve or protect public property. So maintenance is just that it's we're not necessarily removing something. We're not necessarily building something new or, or updating. What we're really just doing is keeping the status quo and keeping something in a, in a good and usable condition. So um, that's just something for clients to think about because maintenance and construction are treated differently. We have a little bit more flexibility when it comes to maintenance as opposed to construction in terms of that bidding threshold. And that difference, uh, we've got What's the what's the different uh, thresholds for for public project versus maintenance? Sure. So, as we said, construction projects fifteen thousand or less. But when we start to get into other purchases, equipment, materials, supplies, and even services services for everything but construction, that jumps all the way up to one hundred nine thousand three hundred dollars as our bidding threshold. So that's a big difference. That is, and and then are there different requirements for how we bid for for public projects versus maintenance or is it relatively the same like in terms of advertisements and uh, prequals and that sort of thing so once you have to bid something the requirements are are very very similar Um, in terms of additional documentation that you might have along with the bid you know that's where it differs with construction But the actual processes in terms of advertisement, whether or not um, prequalification might be needed, the like different prohibitions, all of that is very similar um, in terms of public project versus maintenance. I think really where the difference is important is in that bid threshold. Got it. And then is there something in that in those bidding requirements that folks should be, you know, really if there was one or two things that you really wanted to direct their attention to, uh, just kind of big picture on a podcast, you know, like this, uh, you know, what to be, where, where are there most of the our issues that we see uh, some stumbling blocks? Where would that be as part of the bidding requirements? Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, definitely making sure that you're providing sufficient notice, uh, a sufficient notice period between when you post that the bid is going up when you require um, questions to be submitted and when you require bids to be turned in, you just have to make sure you're adhering to any time requirements that are outlined in the code. Um, Another thing I would say is that if you're doing just a straight bid um, where lowest responsive and responsible bidder wins, as long as the responder meets what's set out in the bid requirement and they have the lowest price, they get the bid. You don't have that flexibility to go to number two 
or number three on the list. You just have to take whoever provided the lowest amount to you. And that's where we see potential issues when people try and go with a different bidder, even when the low bidder was responsive to the bid documentation. Got it. Well, I know we have had other podcasts dealing with modular versus portable uh, constructions, and uh, we've had uh, some lengthy back and forth uh, client news briefs over lease-leaseback type situations, so I'm not going to go into those. I'm going to skip ahead here to talking about um, other procurement methods, other ways that we can um, provide or, or you know address things that we want to to add or to improve our public agencies. And James, Amanda, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, there was a mention earlier, when I'm thinking about bidding and how this estimate gets created, James, you mentioned an architect. Um, where do we get that authority for that type of service outside of the this bidding? You know, how can we get that architect before we go through this bidding process? Sure. So, State law allows for school districts, community college districts, local educational agencies, as well as cities, counties, all public agencies, essentially, to contract for engineering and architectural services. And that is different, a different uh, contracting process. It's not bid. It's not the lowest responsible and responsive bidder. It's the proposal that demonstrates the um, greatest degree of competence and professional qualifications, because really what you want there is somebody who is a competent and capable professional, not somebody who can just make a low bid. Um, And so that type of uh, service, it kind of falls under the general umbrella of professional services. So anybody who would fall under that um, and that's really defined under state law. But anybody who falls under that definition, they can be their services can be procured um, based on a request for proposal or a request for qualification, and then review of those qualifications or proposals for competency and and demonstrated capability to perform the services. So, Amanda, we've talked about. Uh, how to bid, what are the thresholds, we've now gone through bidding requirements, we've kind of talked about how there might be different thresholds based off of whether or not you're a municipality versus a local agency, if you're a CUPCA agency versus a non-CUPCA agency, if it's a construction versus maintenance. All right, at the end of the road, right, we want to cut the ribbon, right? So um, what, what do we need to be looking for? How do we come to a full conclusion on who we're going to select through after this bidding process ends. Sure. So you've put out your request for bids, you get your responses back, you're looking at them. Obviously, price is a big factor. You have to look at who has promised to do what you asked or deliver what you want for the lowest amount of money. Okay, box ticked. After you tick that box, you also have to look at, did the responder promise to do what the bidding instructions demand. So does the bid as submitted comply with all of the requirements of our client's bidding documents? All the boxes have to be ticked. If, you know, the bid said you have to submit with, you know, X, Y, and Z documents, you have to show proof that you're properly licensed. If all of those boxes are checked, the bid was responsive. Now, on the other side of things, we have, is the bidder responsible? And 
that's where I think things get a little bit more mushy and where we can potentially see that litigation that we talked about earlier in um, our discussion, because that's not as easy, I think, to look at sometimes and make a determination. But when we're talking about a lowest responsible bidder, it means that in the context of competitive bidding, there has to be this element of trustworthiness. And it also refers to quality, fitness, and capacity of that low bidder to satisfactorily perform the proposed work. So the question of responsibility is is really a question of fact. um, And it's exercised within the discretion of our client's governing board. So prior to awarding that contract to the next lowest bidder, the board needs to notify the low bidder of any evidence reflecting upon that bidder's responsibility received from others or received by independent investigation that um, maybe paints them in a not so good light. And if any issues came up with that low bidder, they would need to have some sort of opportunity to rebut what was presented against them to basically say, hey, no, you were given this information, but here's how we can counteract that. Here's how we actually prove that that's not true or that we're actually responsible. And so really a district can't reject a low bid just because it considers that second low bidder to be more responsible. The rejection of a low bid really has to be based on a determination that the low bidder is not responsible. So with straight bidding, it's not even a a matter of how responsible you are. It's just if you provided the necessary response, you checked all those boxes, you're the low number, and you can at least be found to be a certain level of responsible, you get the bid. Well, and in some ways, it's almost like a, uh, you know, excuse, excuse the analogy, like a marriage, right? You've got to be responsive and responsible to your partner's needs, right? And, uh, and very much so when we're entering into these contracts, when we're accepting these bids, we got to make sure it's a good fit, right? It's not just simply an arranged, um, you know, only selecting the lowest bid, right, in marriage. But that being said, you're, I mean, maybe the analogy breaks down because you only have what, you know, who's who's there that's going to actually submit the bid for you. So maybe it feels like high school for, for some of us. <laughs> yeah, maybe summer camp. You have a small selection of suitors available yeah. to you. <laughs> but you're right. There is there's a little bit of discretion there, but not as much with other procurement methods, right? It's still, you're still pretty limited by who submitted that low number. It's kind of a, as long as they hit that threshold that they need to, there's not, there's not any additional wiggle room past that. So. Yeah. And and I would just add that um, a good way to think about it is responsiveness relates to the documents themselves and kind of looking at the four corners of the bidding documents or the request for bids and then the bid uh, proposal that was actually submitted. And then if it's, if, if an agency wants to reject a bid based on something outside of those documents and what's included in those documents, it's probably going to go to a responsibility thing because now you're getting into an invest an independent investigation or consideration of facts outside of just whether that bid proposal checks the boxes. Um, and because of that, responsibility uh, determinations require some sort of hearing and due process to be provided to the 
the um, proposing party because there is that level of discretion. So that's that's one of the checks on that. It's not just a simple, uh, we don't really want this person because we don't like them. That um, contractor or that party is entitled to somewhat of an evidentiary hearing to say, well, no, here's our evidence that we are responsible and we can perform the contract as we proposed. Um, and so then, um, you know, other than an architect or an engineer that you might get through those professional services, there's some special services like, hey, uh, Lozana Smith, like, right, like legal, we're, we're considered a special service, right? Um, so how would, how would you want to contract with Lozana Smith or some other law firm? Amanda, I'll let you take that one. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so say you want to hire us, we would be happy to take you on as a client, but Special services such as legal services, finance, economics, accounting. Um, so there is a provision in the government code that basically creates an exception to those regular competitive bidding laws for these quote unquote special services and advice. And um, essentially, it allows for when you're trying to hire persons who are highly trained and technically skilled in the sciences or a profession then you can retain them as independent contractors without doing that competitive bidding. So whether or not a client has their own internal process that they want to follow for hiring those special services, they may have that. They may want to do some sort of request for proposals or they may want to do you know, something where they reach out to individuals, where they request information on pricing, but they don't have to go through that set standard bid process and they don't have to take whoever the low bidder is right because i think like you were saying earlier josh you want to when you're utilizing someone for legal advice or accounting or finances economics you want someone you trust you want someone you work well with um, and you want to know you're getting good advice and i think that's really where the intent of this exception comes from is because when you're dealing with specially trained individuals who provide these specialized services um, you want public entities to hire someone that they feel confident in. Well, thank you. And I, I, you know, I think no one's ever really said that about me saying I'm highly skilled and uh, very <laughs> trained. Uh, so thank you. I appreciate the compliments. Well, let's, uh, let's keep going on to uh, some other procurement methods real quickly. Let's just dive in um, for some brief comments on things like piggybacking and energy service contracts, just real quick, uh, 30 seconds or less on, on this issue. Uh, piggybacking. So essentially what piggybacking allows a client to do is to utilize an existing contract that is already in place with another public entity. Ideally, we recommend another California public entity because the law is a lot less clear on um, utilizing an out-of-state contract. So we usually recommend an in-state contract, but they've already negotiated, they've gone through the necessary bidding process, and they've gotten, ideally, what we would assume are the best prices for these services or items. And so because they've already done the legwork, the public agency is able to then contract for the same services, the same items, et cetera, on the same terms that that other public entity has already agreed to. And James, talk about energy service contracts. Yeah, so um, this is really an area that's you know been burgeoning uh, for the last few years with everybody installing solar and um, Proposition Thirty Nine for school districts that funding availability to install um, energy efficiency upgrades. And so what 
what the um, California legislature has uh, done is they've created an exception to bidding for energy services contracts, and that's specifically defined. So before you go and use this exception, it's good to know whether it actually applies. But essentially what it allows is direct contracting with an energy service provider as long as the agency makes specific findings that it's in the best interest of the agency, there's going to be um, savings from the energy efficiency upgrade, and there's public hearing requirements and things like that to make sure the public can participate in this. But again, it's an exception that allows for um, direct contracting regardless of the dollar amount involved. All right, and then I, you know, we could talk about uh, some other ones uh, real quickly. I know that in the wake of the pandemic, we talked about uh, emergency contracting. Sometimes I feel like uh, people throw out the word emergency a little bit too flippantly. Um, you know, especially uh, you know now that we've kind of gotten familiar with how how great some of the and easy some things were were during that emergency time. Um, other others may. Have, have different opinions on that. Um, for emergency contracts, how difficult is it to get an emergency contract and how limited is that use? So I will say that um, when uh, utilizing emergency contracting, it, in terms of difficulty, strictly speaking about board approval, for a non-CUPCA district, you have to have a unanimous vote. Um, for a CUPCA district, you have to have a four-fifths vote. And I think, Josh, what you were also alluding to is what, what, are, what are we really talking about when we talk about an emergency? Um, and the way I've had it explained to me is a great example is there is a tree that fell in the middle of the cafeteria. We have to get this fixed right away because it is not safe and we're not able to operate without getting this tree removed and fixing the building. Now, are there a lot of other scenarios and situations that differ from that that can also be considered an emergency? Yes, absolutely. But we just have to be careful about what we call an emergency. Um, as you mentioned, I think we've gotten kind of more flexible with that term in recent years. But if you look to the intent of the legislation behind this, this emergency repair exception, um, it's really about there's danger to life or property or you're unable to operate because of this thing. And until it gets fixed, you can't operate as you need to. James, do you agree with uh, Amanda's description of an emergency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I would just say is keep in mind that this is the exception to the rule. And so it's designed so that not every situation is going to be an emergency, nor should it be. It's um, it's not that every unforeseen situation that comes up is an emergency. It's the idea that something has come up which threatens life or safety, the public welfare, um, and there is not time for the public agency to go through the traditional procurement process, whatever that might be. Um, let's say it's just it's bidding, and so there isn't time to put together those documents, have them sent out, have bidding on that, consideration of those and award of that because there's a tree in the cafeteria or something like that. But if it's something where the, the public agency has prior knowledge about 
this situation and it's been going on for some time. And we've seen this a lot where, you know, it's a slow leak and it's destroying electronics and we've let it go on for some time. And then now, because it's starting to get closer to something that's real critical, it's an emergency. It's unlikely that a court is going to say, no, that's an emergency because you knew about it for a long time. You could have addressed it the first 30 days you knew about it. Instead, you waited until the last minute. So um, that those are the areas where, you know, we've kind of seen some nuances there. And again, it's it's the exception to the rule. The, uh, the Jack Bauer exception for some of those who uh, enjoy the old show to 24, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so but uh, it seems like 40 people in a, in a room uh, giving public comment is maybe not counting as, a, as on its own as an emergency. Right. No, probably not. Okay. Although it might feel like that sometimes. (laughs) Well, let's close it out with just talking, um, you know, big picture about uh, funding sources for these different projects. Uh, I think we've mentioned state and federal funds before, but do you want to give us more uh, detail on on the funding sources for these various uh, bids and procurements? Yeah. So the source of funds being utilized for the project is also just really important in terms of um, putting together requirements in the bid documents or the procurement documents, and then also the subsequent contract that you have in place with whoever that service provider or um, you know vendor is after the fact. Because if you're utilizing state funds, there are oftentimes additional procurement or contract requirements, and it's the same with federal funds. Um, there's usually specific contract terms that you have to incorporate when you're utilizing federal funds, um, not to get too far into it, but also with federal funds, there are completely different bidding thresholds that you have to consider and different um, procurement requirements. So let's say you're using um, ESSER funds, let us know that up front because we're going to do a different analysis using those federal um, requirements to take a look at what kind of procurement process we needed to given the amount of, of funding that we anticipate needing to use for the project. Well, it certainly feels like the last uh, 30 seconds were full of uh red tape. Uh, so I want to quickly move on from, from that because that just <laughs> brings shivers down my spine. Um, so let's talk just big picture. James, Amanda, this has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot. And uh, I know this podcast might be running a bit longer than our other ones, but I think it's because the subject is just, uh, there's a lot to cover, a lot to think about. Um, and I think folks, I think it would be good <laughs> for folks to be thinking about this subject with greater detail because uh, it's good to start off on the right foot with these different projects and not have to work backwards. So I'll give you each about, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, big picture. What are your overall thoughts and guidance for folks dealing with bidding and procurement? So we'll start with Amanda, then we'll go to James. Yeah. So um, I think the high points of what we have talked about today is, who are you as a client? So that's important to know so that we can make sure we're giving you the correct direction. Um, What are you trying to buy? How much money are we trying to spend? And um, as we just talked about, what is that source of funding? And those four questions, I think, really summarize 
the high points of what we need to know in order to properly um, advise our clients. So if you come to us with those four things, we're already off on a great start. We have a lot of the information that we need and that um, immediately tells us where we need to go. James. Yeah, I would, I would very much echo that. Um, and just kind of keeping in mind that if we're talking about public works projects, then there's a lot more regulation involved there. And so as part of that consideration, if you determine that this is a public works project, just keeping in mind that that's going to require specific contract provisions that we didn't really even go into. It's going to require payment of prevailing wage, potentially. It kind of leads to this cascade of additional considerations. And so as you're kind of going through those, those four questions, if you will, if you find that it's the public works project, then there are those other considerations that come into play that would be good to bring to our attention as well. We'll, we'll obviously issue spot that with you, but um, if we can start that conversation from there, then we can, um, we can hit the ground running that much more. Well, like I said, a great conversation, a starter uh, guide for any administrator uh, dealing with bidding and procurement issues. I, I think this has been a valuable use of our time and hopefully it has been for you, audience member. And I hope you're ready to take the next step and, and give James or Amanda a call here or any of your other fabulous Lozano Smith attorneys who have experience on this issue and uh, can guide you through this process uh, with, with all the, the red tape and the gritty details to, to navigate through. So thank you both of you for your insights and your time today. Uh, for our audience, if you would like additional information about today's topic, please visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. Additionally, please subscribe to our podcast and sign up to receive our firm's client news briefs so you don't miss the latest in the world of California public agencies. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks, Josh. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.